0: This week I'm joined by Justin Murphy, a political scientist whose research has been published in the British Journal of Political Science and popular outlets such as Foreign Affairs and New Statesman. He is also the author of Based Deleuze, the reactionary leftism of Gilles Deleuze. He now works independently as a writer and podcaster. In this episode we discuss academia, political science, community, the internet, bureaucracy and independent work. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my patrons for making Hermitics possible, and if you'd like to join the Hermitics community or support Hermitics in any way, please find our Patreon donation, merchandise, and Discord links in the description below. Enjoy. Uh, Justin Murphy, finally on the Hermitics podcast. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Um, So for those of you who aren't aware of you, uh, your background is now... I don't know. bit peculiar, isn't it? Can you tell us about yourself, your past and how you ended up doing what it is you now do and and why?
1: Yeah, sure. So I got my PhD in 2014 and I won the academic lottery and I, I, I was able to secure a tenure track job. Uh, that was in England. I'm American, but I moved to England for a tenure track job as a, a professor of, of politics, political science. And that was cool for a while. I enjoyed it. And what happened was, uh, I, for for the first few years, I buckled down and really put my head down because I, you know, it's very competitive and, and challenging. So I had to really focus and hustle on getting out good publications. This is the academic game and if you can get sufficiently prestigious publications and enough of them, then you get tenure. That's essentially the game. And so that's what I did for a few years. And I didn't write much on the internet. I didn't talk much at all. I didn't, never did or said anything uh, at all provocative or even interesting in, in public really. W- then what happened was I, I I succeeded and and I got my good publications and I was uh, you know quite quite successful and everyone in my department was you know impressed and satisfied with my with my progress. so I said, okay, now I'm going to start you know taking my freedom because that's what academia is supposed to be right That's the whole reason I got into academia is because of this idea that you pay your dues, you get tenure and then once you have that secure paycheck and that perch in a kind of prestigious institution, then you have freedom, right? That's the whole allure of, of tenure. And so I, I, I guess I was stupid enough or naive enough to, to actually believe that and take it seriously. And that's actually what I started doing. So once I got tenure, mind you, this is the British version of tenure. So it's not quite as as strong or powerful as the American version, but uh, you know, in England they call it permanency. Uh, you know, I became permanent and, at that time, I, I said pretty consciously, okay, now, I, now I'm gonna start having more fun <laughs> because I was really bored. I mean, I, I I went into academia for this reason. And when I decided to start taking my liberties, I uh, immediately started getting flack. And so it, it it slowly and gradually became clear that the vision I had for what it meant to be an intellectual, for, for for what an intellectual life is supposed to look like, which in my view is 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 true, you know, radical freedom to, to question everything and to say, things that normal people are not willing or able to say. That's always been my vision from the day I got into kind of the intellectual game, probably when I was like 18 and first decided that I I really wanted to pursue an intellectual life. Uh, Once I started to do it, started getting flack and it became clear that there was going to be some sort of reckoning eventually. And so what happened was I just started investing more and more in my internet work, uh, putting more and more, you know, taking my internet content game more seriously and building real systems. Uh, automating a lot and really being quite aggressive and 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 working hard on that. And eventually, what happened was my internet project started taking off sufficiently. And at the same time, I was kind of like less and less happy with academia. So at a certain point those two those two trends kind of intersected. And I got in i got I got in trouble for the the straw that broke the camel's back was I, I tweeted something one day that had the word retard in it and a student didn't like this they complained and so uh i got suspended for that actually and when i got suspended they were like okay now just don't talk about this and uh we need to do an investigation and the word i got from my colleagues was kind of like okay if you just kind of lay low this will probably blow over it's not like that big of a deal Uh, and i was like no i'm not like being silent i'm not gonna sit in my house for um you know potentially weeks or months on end uh, in silence, uh, like the whole th- the whole point of what I was doing was that like I don't have to I don't have to take these these orders and um, so pretty much I told my dean straight up I was like I'm not going to be silent like I I have I have I have successful growing uh, platform as a truly free thinker and speaker uh, There's no way I'm going to put that on pause like in fact if you're suspending me I'm now even going to have more time to work on that and and thank you for the, for the free for the free time uh, with a paycheck. And that's what I did. I, to- I-, I told them. I told them I was going to keep doing whatever I wanted, and I doubled down. And I and I, I wasn't supposed to talk about the investigation, but I I told my my audience all about the investigation because it was it's hilarious, right? Like I'm a social scientist. I have an obligation to comment honestly on. What is going on in the social world? You, you, um, because my just because my dean tells me you know keep your mouth shut doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about what's actually going on, which is a fascinating process in the university. Like that's that's what I have to talk about. I'm a social scientist, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's that's pretty much the TLDR. And uh, I decided to, I ultimately the way the the, res, the situation resolved itself was I just decided to go my separate ways. Um, I maybe they they were probably maybe going to try to fire me. It's not clear if they would have been able to. Um, I probably would have had a very good uh, position if I wanted to fight it legally. I'm just not that type of dude. I, I don't, I, I don't want to get involved in a whole year-long legal battle. The whole point of, of what I was doing was that all my creative intellectual stuff was taking off really well. I just wanted to keep going on that. I wasn't, I wasn't willing to pause that. So I, I also wasn't willing to pause that for some kind of idiotic legal battle. The fact of the matter is I decided to leave because I was never really happy anyway, and my internet projects and and the financial returns on my internet projects were just barely compelling enough and growing enough that I, I felt a confident in, in taking that leap and and wagering my life on them in a way. And uh, yeah, I, I a lot of people kind of questioned why I quit and they thought I should have, you know, let them fire me or do this big battle or whatever. Um, but the fact of the matter is, what I was re- one of the things I wanted to signal is that it's not worth fighting for. It is a, academia is a sinking ship. It's it's horrible. It's it's honestly really horrible. Like I was never happy. Um, it was it, the whole thing was a bit of a nightmare the whole time I was I was an academic to be perfectly frank. I mean there were cool people. I'm not talking shit about individuals. Most of my colleagues were awesome for what it's worth. But uh, um, I was really trying to signal to the world that like it's not even worth fighting. I would rather just leave, and that's what I did. And now I'm full time just. Uh, doing research, uh, speaking, and uh, designing any number of kind of creative entrepreneurial experiments to kind of uh, package and share with the world my my intellectual work. I'm, I've essentially disintermediated all of the academic functions, all of the academic value I was providing to to the university institution. I pretty much chipped them off and uh, reframed them and repackaged them for 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 public usage. And uh, I'm happy to say I'm now financially stable i've actually almost i'm almost at 100 percent of my academic salary in fact only one year out so i'm quite proud of that
0: you a couple of things there. you mentioned you said academic hustle and do you think do you think that that the structure that's put up there you know getting peer-reviewed jumping through certain hoops do you think that is sort of akin to the same hustle that you have to do on the internet there's certain you know it's not as let's say like aristocratic and professional as as it seems it is a bit of a hustle did you did you did you feel that way when you're in academia
1: oh i mean academia is definitely a hustle of sorts you have to work extremely hard for sure you have to work long hours and you have to uh, compete aggressively for sure no doubt about that but i would say the the hustle on the open market is so qualitatively different than the hustle in academia uh, and and personally this might be a bit of a personality thing. I, I'm not sure if this would generalize to other people. I think there probably are some people who prefer academia, but the hustle on the open market to me is so much more fun and interesting, and it, it sits what it sits with me so much better. Um, and and I think the reason is personally that in academia, you're competing in what is primarily a social game. It's like 10% intellectual. Sure, people are kind of uh, com- people are uh, showing their their intellectual. Firepower, and uh, there's some selection based on yeah who's the smartest and who's the who has the best uh, kind of research. That, that, so so part of it is obviously a kind of old-fashioned uh, kind of IQ competition and IQ uh, filtering or sorting. But that honestly, that's only a, a relatively small fraction of it. The rest of the game is essentially determined by by social games. Who are you friends with? Who can you kind of uh, ingratiate yourself with? Who are the ability to detect what particular social groups are worth investing in and which aren't. And then the ability to kind of you know, placate the the groups that you want to placate. Placate, for instance, journal editors and uh, these various little kind of petty gatekeepers. Um, your ability to basically uh, climb those ranks and break into those different social groups uh, is is the lion's share of the competitive game in academia. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's just the opposite of intellectual life. It's It's actually quite orthogonal to it and so winning the social competition always felt to me like a constant departure from and deviation from what I was actually what I actually thought I was there to do and what I actually really wanted to do whereas on the open market there's still a kind of compromise right like there is always still going to be this conflict or tension between making money and telling the truth uh, th- th- there's always going to be a conflict there but I have found uh sincerely in in in, in my experience in both worlds that one's ability to tell the truth and make money on the open market um, is is much more consistent. It's much less tense and 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 painful uh, a, a, a compromise or painful a trade off than trying to win these petty social games as a kind of, and, and pretending that there's like a, a intellectual content to it. Because in the open market, at least for me so far, you if you have an intellectual diagnosis of the world that is correct that other people don't have then money tends to flow to you, right? You have, that's your edge, right? So, so having access to some sort of truth that other people don't, if if it is a real truth and only time will tell, there's no way of knowing a priori. But if you see something that is real that other people don't um, you in principle, there should be a way for you to um, make money off of doing that. Um, And uh, no, what's amazing about that is that no one can take that from you. It's, 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 it's sort of, you are interacting with objective reality in a way. Uh, that if you're right, no one can stop it. Whereas in academia, you can have like a great idea, but if you're not uh, able to ingratiate yourself socially with the right people, then your, you know, quote unquote discovery doesn't even exist.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you think it was the the problem, you know, the the straw that broke the camel's back, do you think that was a problem just because it was a, a political course? Or do you think that this problem would arise in even, you know, courses such as seemingly harmless, such as geography, do you think it's a problem of control, or is it is it more specific to courses which can become more problematic, such as social, you know, sociology or politics?
1: I don't quite exactly understand what you mean. Maybe just drill um, down a little bit.
0: So you were in a, a political political science PhD. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it seems to me that that is the kind of course where they might be controlling what happens within the course because it is such a potentially volatile subject. Whereas if someone who was Oh, tenure, I get the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if someone had tenure on a geography course and said something along those lines, I'm just wondering if you think it was specific to that um, uh, niche.
1: Well, it's certainly not specific to political science as a discipline. It's You could say that it's it's what I'm describing here is more relevant to the social sciences as a whole and certainly the humanities as a whole. But I mean the social sciences plus the humanities, that's a huge swath of the university as, as a whole, right? So, um, yes, I think in, in other, for instance, hard science domains, these problems are much less significant. But that's also because those people just don't have any reason to be talking about social issues. Um, the way I see it is, as a political scientist, as a social scientist, I have an obligation to try to understand everything that's going on in society and to report it honestly. And so, yes, in that way, um, because society is my object of analysis, there you're you're much more likely to observe these types of political conflicts with institutions sure
0: um, before we go any further I, d- I do need to ask you the uh, the hermetic's question uh so you can place three thinkers in a room living or dead uh, which which three do you pick
1: i have a clarifying question am i hanging out with them or am i not hanging out with them
0: you're sat you're sat in the room you're sat in the room so you could chat to so, them if you wanted to yeah
1: okay so i can facilitate the conversation yeah sure so in that case I was thinking it would probably have to be okay. So I'm guessing that a lot of people will answer this question; they'll take it as a proxy for kind of who their favorite thinkers are, or they'll kind of like pick three thinkers to kind of signal their kind of unique uh, identity this, or this intellectual
0: this profile. Yeah, there's a lot. But of I'm it. not going to
1: do that. I'm going to try to. I'm I'm going to answer it more objectively. I think. Um, I don't. I'm going to name three thinkers who I think are not—they're not necessarily my personal favorite—but I think you'd, you'd have to pick them. I, I think it would have to be Darwin, Marx, and Freud, mm-hmm. just because these—I think—I think these three thinkers are probably the three most significant, original, and uh, effectively revolutionary thinkers who would have so much to say to each other. And because in, in different ways, they're, they're, they're all um, peeling off huge pieces of the same puzzle and at least roughly the same historical moment. And so I thought about this question, and, and I think you could come up with a bunch of very interesting uh, combinations of thinkers. But in many cases, in many of the ones I wanted to suggest, uh, they just, I don't think they'd have too much to talk about, or I think th- they would be so different. that. I'd be worried. I'd, I'd worry that it wouldn't be productive. But I think if you could get um, Marx, Darwin, and Freud in a room, you'd have the the best possible chance of just the most insanely interesting and productive uh, discussion.
0: So you have a real interest in what makes people do what they do. Uh, why do people do what they do? And sort of what are the control mechanisms that make people do that? Uh, this is sort of clear to me that this is is this sort of your MO in is, you know, as much as you have this intellectual work on top of this, it seems to me that your current trajectory is sort of a understanding of what makes people do what they do via creating structures which are making them do the things you believe they do. So, um, you know, you, for instance, you recently had a podcast episode on engineering negative social attention or negative virality you know, negative mm. virus. And it seems to me that, you know, in concordance with Darwin, Freud, Marx, your primary interests are why are people are doing what they're doing, especially, especially in relation to the internet.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting reading. I'd have to think about that. I'm not sure, to be honest. I think I definitely have a deep sympathy with a kind of overarching attitude towards society in which most of what is, relevant and interesting is more or less hidden to the the people who are acting it out so that would be one way to to say it that i've often thought about uh which i think jives with what you're talking about and i think you know that that's one way to characterize the, the commonality between uh these three revolutionary modern thinkers so yeah I, could, I i i could see i could see that
0: this is this is, this is the thing that i've sort of noticed about your work is that you, you know, whether or not you want to admit it at the moment right now, you are sort of a master of this, of understanding the the emptiness behind the act. So, I mean, you're known for now saying things which are sort of, no, I'm not going to say attention seeking, that's completely the wrong word. They are, it seems to be nodes of attention, which are just taken as sort of an experiment. You love experimenting with mm. what it is that makes people engage. Do, do you think that all this attention is good in some form that it eventually converts? Well, I'd say a few things. First is that I think there's always
1: been a historical association. I take this to be a kind of empirical law in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an association between the genuine intellectual life and social opprobrium. This is just a, a, a kind of deep feature of how I see society, I think. True intellectuals, almost by definition, bring on negative social attention. Uh, It's easy to think of many examples, right? Socrates was known as a gadfly, ultimately executed for it. You know, Diogenes, a kind of philosophical role model of mine was, um, you know, everyone thought he was extremely annoying and and he was widely reviled by many normal people, although highly respected by powerful people such as Alexander the Great. Um, Jesus himself is sort of an example of this. Rousseau, another example of a kind of um, insistent, radical truth teller, uh, who earned, you know, extraordinary amounts of contempt and hatred from from norm from normies, as it were. You can you can think of many many other examples. Nietzsche would be another example. And so I, I I take this I take this to be a fact. I take this to be a deep feature of what it means to be an intellectual. Now this is not to say, and I've I've been very clear about this. I think this does not mean that. Anything which attracts negative attention is therefore uh, emblematic of the radical intellectual life. Of course not. But I do think that if you are pursuing a radical intellectual life and you don't pretty regularly face social opprobrium, then you're probably not really doing it right. So that's one, that's one empirical belief I have about what it means to be an intellectual and how society works. The second part of your question, though, I would, I would clarify a little bit because you asked me, do I think that negative attention converts? I don't think it converts. I would I would avoid the word conversion because the fact is uh, most people don't change their mind. I mean this is a this is just a kind of issue of social science, especially today in a kind of in our uh, highly polarized context. People people don't change their minds. You can give people if someone is a is a committed left winger, you can give them facts and data that uh, really point in a right wing direction. And uh, there's this phenomenon in, in political science research known as the backfire effect. Uh, it can actually increase their commitment to, to their left-wing beliefs. And same thing with the right-wing. So uh, generally, as a political scientist, um, I take it for granted that, um, you know, normal people, the herd, if you will, um, just generally kind of chugs along thinking whatever it will think in, in the direction that it wants to think because people are essentially, you know, not really reflective people. And so that, so so no, I don't think there's a conversion process at work that I'm interested in playing around with. But Rather, there is a uh, kind of sorting process, and when you put out controversial statements or provocative performances of any kind, the the relevant process is not conversion but but sorting. And so, what is perceived by some people as negative uh, negative virality is actually for other people um, it, it's 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 a sign of something positive. So uh, this is also rooted in a social scientific idea, which I've been talking about for years now and which, which I've, I've been developing a lot more over the past year, which is this idea of costly signaling. This comes out of the game theory literature. And the basic idea here is that um, to, to communicate a true signal across a noisy channel, mm-hmm. the 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 speaker has to incur a kind of cost. And this might sound kind of peculiar, but, if you think about it, it's pretty intuitive because in a world where everyone can say whatever they want and it's super super cheap, right? In a context of cheap talk, mm-hmm. then most people's signals uh, are not going to be reliable, right? When when anyone can say anything, full speed ahead, um, what you get is like the contemporary internet, right? It's just people uh, putting out symbols uh, on a on a regular everyday basis. That's pretty much just like promoting themselves, right? Everyone is pretty much just like um, trying to say whatever will get them resources. And in that context where talk is cheap and uh, you're able to just put out as many symbols as you want with no cost, everything becomes noise. And that's the situation that we're in now. Everyone can everyone can relate to that intuitively. But that's actually a game theory concept. And I mean noise in a technical sense. Like when you look out at the Twitter or something like that, everyone is just kind of blabbering uh, in a kind of uh, conventional way trying to pretty much promote themselves because there's no punishment if they're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing bad happens to them, um, in any event, um, when you're promoting yourself. But if you are willing to put out statements or put out public performances where you actually do pay a price, then all of a sudden that statement or performance, it rises above the noise. It, it's a true signal. And and that's that's a formal that's a formal process that you can kind of demonstrate mathematically in the game theory. Uh, simply because the, the the willingness for the speaker to take on that cost proves that they must have something worth saying. That there, there must be something real there. Because if there wasn't, why would they pay the cost? So that's the logic, and 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 it's a formal logic, and and I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think when you understand that, what you realize is that the only way to be a public intellectual in our context. Of just extraordinarily thick and dense noise, and just uh, so many you know normal people uh, doing nothing that even approaches the true intellectual life, but but kind of you know presenting themselves as as intellectuals or whatever, like journalists or whatever. The only way to get a message across to to to, to the world, to 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 affect the culture, to create ripples in the social fabric, is to is to find ways to express truths where you are willing to take a cost. And uh, that, and so what you're doing is you're not converting anyone. So, so most of society is going to like hate you, call you a gadfly or whatever. This is like the phenomenon that has recurred throughout history, which I talked about. But when you put out a provocative statement and you take that cost, what happens is that maybe 10,000 people out there in that orbit of yours who are actually sensitive to the true intellectual life, they're actually looking for dangerous truths and they're looking for people who are willing to put themselves out there to diagnose those truths and and to and to, and to express themselves honestly, those 10,000 people will immediately see that costly speech as an indicator, oh, this guy is worth following. And this has happened to me uh, repeatedly. So, so I really do think that this is essentially a social scientific hypothesis um, that is empirically demonstrable because every single time, I've said something that got me in trouble. I've picked up highly intelligent and often influential um, thinkers, makers, um, entrepreneurs, uh, and the movers and shakers of the world who are out there looking for real signals. That's always going to be a small minority of people. So you have to kind of take the hatred of the the kind of idiotic passive herd in order to get the attention of uh, people who are really looking for real signals.
0: So you need to make a a different form of noise within all the other noise which finally gets everyone's attention to the point that they realize the the normal noise is just static and perhaps they're not actually looking for uh, the uh, the sort of outstanding or um alternative opinions which which they believe they did do you think that you mentioned truth a lot there do you think that our notion and what we um believe truth to mean is altered in the the context of this sort of open communication framework you know the internet do you think the truth's altered at all
1: well i tend to believe the truth is eternal and does not alter
0: so when you say that the the people who are sort of such as yourself have got certain truths to say you do you, you just mean that in the normal context of truth you don't mean anything unique by that
1: i think the truth is unique but i think the truth ranges from the mundane to the to the to the impressive i you know i think most of what most people say and do on an everyday basis is laced with falsehoods. I'd kind of take this for granted. And and in, and in part it's, it's, this is required, right? I mean, living in a practical way um, it's kind of practical necessity to be constantly fudging things and constantly papering over things. It's, it's uh, especially in, if you're, if you're working with the social mass um, you know, society is kind of held together by lies. I guess that's a kind of foundational part of my, my, my basic viewpoint on, on what the social world is. Um, and, and I don't know perhaps I take that as an axiom, but I think if you, if you think that society is essentially held together by lies, then the the truth is just um, any number of things ranging from little things to big things that for the most part you're um, really not supposed to say. And I, I think that that domain of observations that you're not supposed to say, is massive and that that's 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 what i mean by the truth
0: so you're sort of um profiting off deconstruction you're profiting off stripping back layers which people don't want to admit they 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 love and find comfort in so that's that's sort of the sorting thing you're talking about is you put out a, a signal to say look you know i'm stripping this thing back are you the people who are comfortable with the reality as you now see it, or are you going to uh, sort of, as you say, backfire and just ignore the, the signal you've put out?
1: Yeah, you could say that in a way. You're essentially trading the respect of 10,000 normal idiot people in order to gain the respect of maybe, you know, 50 uh, smart, interesting, uh, serious people.
0: Mm-hmm. And you think that you think that's a healthy payoff?
1: hundred oh, percent if you're an intellectual, it's the only pay. I mean it's the, it's the of course, absolutely. it's a no it's an absolute no-brainer if you're a true intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, but but frankly, I think w- what a lot of people don't really understand is that this is now dovetailing with economic incentives because everything now is niche in terms in terms of economic projects. Um, everything, everything is going niche. And so to build something that is economically viable, um, you have to make this trade-off. Uh, if you try to make something for everyone, uh, then no one's going to be interested in it. But if you make something for a particular niche, and you can simply get the word out to that niche, then uh, that's the type of stuff that people want. That's the st- types of stuff that people will pay for. And that's the type of stuff people get involved in. For what it's worth, I think there's a kind of deep, there's a, there's a deep social and ontological even uh, process at work here. Um, so I'm I'm thinking about the work of our scott backer and i've written about this myself i mean i I do think that reality itself is fragmenting in a a very new way that we've never quite seen before so i think the nichification of of the economy is actually a a kind of second order effect or or it's downstream of a much more primary and i think potentially irreversible process in which um individual, like groups, independent groups are essentially now having to kind of create their own realities and sustain their own realities. You know, you already see this very clearly with the left and the right. I mean, I don't know if people appreciate how how insane polarization is today. We've never, ever seen this in the world, I don't think, where um, you have half of uh, half of Western countries living in one reality with its own assumptions, its own facts even. And you have another half of the reality living, uh, you know, in the same neighborhood sometimes, um across the street with a completely different reality. Of course, there's always been disagreements across left and right and and potentially very strong and powerful ones. Uh, but even at times of like civil war historically, you know uh, the, the the opposing sides of civil wars are often, you know they're they're they have the same map of the world. They just have powerful uh, and deep disagreements about what should happen next. Right now, we don't even have uh, dis- We we don't even have the same map, right so, um, the context of, of polarization today is in a way better and worse than old school kind of historical political conflicts, um, because it, it, it's, it's better only in the sense that uh, things like honor battles and civil wars and, and the actual kind of uh, uh, often violent uh, conflicts that came about through older forms of, of polarization or, or kind of antagonism escalation are now no longer happening. That's kind of the good thing. But it's precisely because the opposing parties are literally not even in the same reality anymore. So they don't even have anything to directly um, kind of engage in violence over. But what's actually going on is now people are like these different groups are in spaceships and they're kind of going off in, in divergent directions into outer space. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate how real that is, and and how drastic and significant that is. I think the nicheification of of the economy, if you look at the different startups that are succeeding and the and the different dynamics at the moment, um, everything is going niche, and that's only a downstream effect of this kind of uh, extraordinary kind of fragmentation of reality itself. And so that's the kind of background empirical model I have that is that is also kind of significant for how I'm thinking about how the intellectual life needs to move forward to operate. You have to find your a people. And if you can't find a people, you have to create a people. And the only way to do that is by uh, putting out truths that diverge from what most people think.
0: Do you think this is such an act is only possible within this sort of new era of the internet that we're sort of going into where the startup culture and the the ability to basically plug into business business dynamics, which prior to this new form of the internet were extremely difficult to plug into. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's only possible because of that? Or do you think that this could be possible now in an analog means?
1: It's not only possible because of that, but absolutely it's being accelerated by that. I, I definitely believe that. It's so much easier now to build a successful business on the internet than it was even five years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been significant uh, changes and improvements in this that 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 are literally you know within this decade. Um, namely, I mean, I'll give you a few examples because this is something I'm quite interested in. For you know, uh, people may or may not know that I'm actually building my own startup that is essentially trying to uh, support other independent intellectuals and basically teach them everything I know about startup world essentially and convert that knowledge into applicable models for independent intellectuals to essentially go pro independently. And so, so, so I'll just give you two random examples of things that are brand new and significantly lowering the cost of being able to build significant um, uh, businesses essentially o- online. Like one would be uh, Stripe for instance, um, the unicorn uh, Silicon Valley company um, actually from uh, out, of, out of Ireland, the Carlson brothers out of, out of Ireland, uh, but they basically revolutionized uh, payment processing. Like payment processing wasn't even itself uh, very well worked out very smoothly until very very recently it was actually relatively hard to set up your own structures to receive to receive payments that are not intermediated through other institutions that's one example that that's brand new and um, it's now incredibly easy and smooth and flexible to create a to create uh, uh, payment processes, another one would be the no code movement. I think the no code movement is so interesting and, and important for kind of creative people and intellectual people because essentially, I don't know if people realize this, but programming, computer programming, and, and web development, like making actual fully functional web applications, doesn't even anymore require code. You can do it through uh, completely visual build building tools. Uh, This is known as the no-code movement, being able to essentially build all types of web apps without using any code. And this is going to completely revolutionize, I think, the nature of internet-based entrepreneurship because what it means is that literally now anyone can create web applications without knowing how to code. So I think the number of people who could potentially build a legit internet business, uh, it just increased dramatically even over the past few years because the no-code movement is is, is extremely new. So yeah, I, I definitely think there are many things uh, going on right now that are seriously lowering the costs to 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 building legit like high revenue um, Really impressive and sophisticated uh, Internet businesses and frankly not even a lot of people e- even know about this like, certainly not a lot of academics or intellectuals, so that's kind of like part of my kind of um, Missionary zeal at the moment is I'm trying to shout from the rooftops to academics to other intellectuals It's never been easier to build a financially viable structure of of any kind, as long as you're providing value to some people somewhere, it's never been easier to do that. And I think that as a kind of financial basis for conducting intellectual work over the long term, is much, much more promising than um, having to do it through a kind of bureaucratic alliance. The way that I think about it now at the moment is to to pursue an intellectual life historically, you have to either make an alliance with bureaucracy or you have to make an alliance with commerce. Uh, In one way or another, most models of making intellectual work financially viable, I I think ultimately boil down to one of those two, at least I think that's a useful framework. And of course, the academia is building an intellectual life in an alliance with bureaucracy. And the models I'm talking about now are building an intellectual life in alliance with uh, the open market or commerce. And you know, historically, maybe that the choice of bureaucracy was better. Um, But now I think it's just painfully obvious that all the bureaucratic sclerosis and just accumulated uh, slow, dead, resentful, terrible features of contemporary modern bureaucracy in Western countries is just so pathetically stupid and painful relative to the extraordinary dynamism and freedom and power uh, at such a low cost that uh, essentially commercial forms are now uh, making available to people.
0: Do you think this is uh, inherently libertarian?
1: No, honestly, I mean, on some level, sure. Like on one level of analysis, yes, it's it, it's a it's a very libertarian gesture. But that libertarianism uh, permits the creation of internal structures and internal cultures that can be uh, very non-libertarian. So you kind of make this you make this libertarian leap, but then that purchases you the power and freedom to create internal cultures that maybe are very anti-libertarian. So you you know you can easily imagine. Uh, kind of going on the open market, making this kind of libertarian jump in a way, away from, from governance structure, from currently existing governance structures into this kind of more anarchistic, capitalistic, libertarian kind of sphere. But with that freedom and with the ability to create value being so unleashed, then you can easily imagine people using that to create communities and create cultures that are you know, monarchical or, um, you know, uh, Christian democracy or, uh, you name it, you you can, you can uh, and, and I think honestly, that's kind of what you're seeing because a lot of the dynamics you're seeing are, um, people want community. People really, really want community and people are willing to pay good money for legitimate, valuable community. That is the type of community that they're looking for. And community is kind of, the opposite of libertarianism on some level, and um, so the, the the norms of those communities can and will be kind of shaped or evolved according to whatever the underlying preferences are for 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 um, the the members. And yeah, I think there's there's a, a lot of room for diversions from that libertarian um, kind of uh, tendency. Like if people want a kind of strict kind of communist cohesion. Uh, and 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 radical egalitarianism within their community then they're able to make that for themselves
0: mm-hmm. do you think that's the way the future is going generally towards a more sovereign and autodidactic sort of framework do you think there's a lot of distrust for bureaucracies government institutions academic institutions do you think that they are connected or do you think that the sovereign thing is is just sort of coming out on its own
1: yeah, I think they're probably connected. Well, uh, first of all, I'll say it's it's beyond dispute that there is increasing mistrust of pretty much all mainstream institutions. I mean, we have good uh, data on this, good, good survey data. And if you look at the public opinion data, it's very, very clear. Um, Western uh, populations are uh, radically disillusioned with pretty much all mainstream institutions. It's trust of mainstream institutions pretty much across the board has been decreasing for several years now and and it's kind of frighteningly low in most in most domains. And so that's that's a fact. Is that connected to kind of the rising possibilities of, of sovereignty? I think there's there's an interesting complication here because I think it's it's very it's very unequal. And and I think people just have to face the facts of this. Um for people who are intelligent and creative and able to de- develop and push forward uh, a difficult Projects over time, then sovereignty is increasing for sure. Um, but it is just a simple fact that uh, human beings have different abilities to uh, design and conceive, and then push through over time difficult, interesting projects. That's just very unequally distributed. So um, it's always going to be a relatively small minority that is capable of, uh, yeah, designing visionary ideas and and having the conscientiousness to actually push them through over years across so many challenges that, that you inevitably face. So I think what's happening is, and this is frankly a kind of uh, a bit of a red-pilled gloss on the content creator economy. I think what's happening is that social reality is fragmenting, as I talked about before. I take that as a fact. And the in, in the anxiety and just the kind of existential horror and dread of reality itself breaking down, there is a massive latent demand for anything or anyone who can create some order, who can create some reality, who can create create, in other words, structures of neg entropy in this uh, feeling everyone has of, of accelerating uh, entropy. Uh, people really, really need and want structure uh, and order. And I think this goes under the euphemism of quote-unquote community or meeting. These are like the very popular kind of surface-level words people talk about, the need for meaning or the need for community. Um, I think what what that really is reflecting is that social reality is is fragmenting. It's horrifying and devastating. And most normal people aren't able to create order for themselves. So, or they're not able to find meaning in the world themselves. So what they're really, what's really going on is uh, large sums of normal people are are hoping for or waiting for smarter, more capable, and more conscientious people to create structures of order for them to which they can join and uh, or subscribe to and they're willing to pay for it. And I think that's essentially what's happening with the content creator, uh, you know economy or all of you know these these dynamics go under different names. I think the horror Horowitz people call this the passion economy. Um, Your listeners might just know of it as, you know, the content creator game or the Patreon game Mm -hmm. um, or the crowdfunding game. And so what's really happening, honestly, is there's this kind of mad scramble among entrepreneurs who are trying to kind of uh, peel off uh, pieces of this fragmenting social reality. And and they're trying to own them as as small kingdoms, small fiefdoms. And then they're bringing in uh, people who are like them. And and for money, in other words. Um, so so I think there's there's a kind of um, much more political, much more existential uh, kind of uh, underlying process to this to this uh, crowdfunding or content creator or passion economy that that we're seeing. I think it's a scramble to by by smart, creative, conscientious people to essentially build new worlds out of the fragments of the old, and then charge admission. For other people with similar personality traits as the founder or content creator, and and so the political polarization you're seeing over the past few decades with left and right is now accelerating into micro niches based on essentially very fine grained aesthetics and 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 personality traits.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think it seems to me that you're primarily speaking of a uh, creation of social reality which is primarily digital or virtual? Um, if you agree with this, do you think that that it already is seeping out from the virtual into the real uh, or the, the, the material, or do you think that that is going to happen sort of all at once, once once these niches are truly established, that's when you can sort of begin building, um, or do we not even need to, to affect the material world anymore? That's sort of an afterthought of the virtual.
1: Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I don't know if you need to, uh, but I definitely think the the digital is kind of the initial vector of this uh, kind of extraordinary fragmentation of reality, or in one of my essays, I call this uh, the hard forking of reality. I think the digital is obviously a, a primary initial vector for the hard forking of reality for the simple reason that, um, yeah, you you can do things at scale, you can automate things, and and it's it's obviously just much more powerful than trying to organize uh, in meat space. So for sure, that's kind of be the initial vector. But what you also see is that any kind of reality entrepreneur who is able to uh, create a, a a social negentropic structure out of out of this accelerating fragmentation of the world, one of the things that you immediately see following on that is a real desire and drive to do uh, things in real life, uh, IRL, as it were. Uh, and so, just like to give you one little example because it's fresh in my mind and I have the you know anecdotal. Uh, data to share with you. I did my first ever live podcast event and meet and, and kind of planned meetup. I've done small meetups here and there, but I did my first ever kind of big publicized live podcast event with a um, a kind of special experimental hangout afterwards. I rented a mansion in LA for people on the internet who wanted to just meet up and uh, talk about ideas and and hang out for the weekend. And this is my first time ever doing it, and, um, I mean, I, I don't wanna like talk too much about my own projects or anything like that, but I, I, I'm only bringing this up, I swear, because it was really, really profound how people, like the feedback that I got, it, it was really kind of social scientifically profound because um, about 15 people came and stayed in this mansion that I rented in Los Angeles for, for the weekend and immediately afterwards, um, like completely unsolicited, more than a few of them said like ridiculously nice and positive stuff. Like that was the most amazing thing I've ever been to. I've never been like, I've never, I've never been to anything like this in my entire life. And I'm not making this up at all. It's like, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I didn't ask for feedback even. And so it was like, holy shit, like the, all of this kind of online stuff that that people are doing to kind of create new structures and create new communities. Um, it's, it's definitely, definitely there's an extraordinary kind of latent feeling and latent demand for having that bubble up into real life, into real kind of interpersonal uh, face-to-face relationships and communities, and and you already see this with other with with other uh, domains, right? Like conferences are really big. It's a huge market. Um, it's a huge industry. Uh, doing kind of niche conferences, people will pay mad money to go to some place where there are other people in their niche. Um, and so the example I gave you from my own experience is is just a kind of micro intellectualized uh, niche version of of something that you're seeing in other domains also so so yeah i definitely think the digital will bubble back up into irl and, until over time you're just going to see i think completely segmented uh, n- niche realities whole realities that are both digital and irl
0: so it seems to me that the communal and community aspects of which which are assumed to be within universities academia um, bureaucratic structures they seem to be non-existent you're just left with the structure do you think that's what people are feeling that when they enter into things which um, supposedly are meant to have communities such as universities etc they no longer actually have them and they're just left with the the sort of mind-numbing structure of academia and they're looking for it elsewhere
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, dude, think about how crazy this is. Indiethinkers.org, which I mentioned before, it's a membership community for independent intellectuals. Um, there's a good little handful of students who are already paying good money to be a part of a university who are now going out of their way. They come to me and want to pay me to be a part of my independent intellectual community on the internet. Think about how crazy that is. Um, but it's it, it's extremely demonstrative of exactly what you're talking about. The university is a kind of shell that um, claims to do a bunch of things. It claims to solve a whole basket of problems: community, intellectual development, learning, teaching, and you know, a, a bastion for ideas. It's essentially none of those things anymore. It's just this kind of inert, uh, kind of memory of those things, and, and and it's so costly, and yet people are still looking for it elsewhere. So I take that to be kind of incontrovertible, uh, kind of data-based uh, evidence that that. Of, of this claim uh, that that the university is just failing. Because it's easy to say that. It's easy, you know, cheap talk is easy. Um, it's easy to just kind of criticize the university. But when you actually look at people's behavior and what they're willing to pay for, I think it's it's a much more powerful uh, testimony.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the things that keeps coming up, um, and I know you're a really big fan of it, is Silicon Valley culture generally, which is sort of hard to describe if you haven't got your your, your th- your finger on the pulse of it, but it's it's to me it's sort of a form of like hyperproductivity, hyperproductivity sort of min-maxing elements that people would never think that you could sort of control and affect. And do you think this form of culture, the Silicon Valley culture, which seems to be affecting and infecting the entire West now in certain forms, everything's getting monetized, everything's getting commodified, everything's uh, sort of like super cybernetic and managed. Do you think this is bad, or is this something you're really enjoying? I, I guess you're enjoying it as a social scientist.
1: Well, again, I think what's really at stake here is just a difficult reality of inequality. I'm not sure if your listeners would be familiar with a, a concept out of the economics literature, which I've, I've made a lot of this in, in the past few years. I've written about it and talked about it in, in various pieces. Uh, but I think a really important concept for people to understand is this notion of what they call skill-biased technological change. And really, that's just a long-winded way of saying that with the advance of digital technologies that we're seeing you know, since World War II, roughly, for people who are gifted with certain traits, this increases their income. Technology increases the income of certain people who are, let's just say for short, highly skilled. And for people who are not highly skilled, um, it makes the situation worse for them. Okay, so tech the, the advance of digital technology has this really um, difficult, troubling, uh, kind of divergent effect for different types of people, and what you're so this is a this is a crucial kind of background um, empirical reality that that people have to understand to be able to process like what even is Silicon Valley? Um, wh- what does what does the culture of Silicon Valley represent? What it represents is that if you're highly skilled and you're good at designing systems, you're good at following through on the creation of systems, then yeah, the, the, the digital technologies and their advancement are are increasingly good for you. But if you're not good at building systems or you're not good at following through on the construction of systems, then digital technologies are going to make your ability to survive even, even harder, even worse. And so, to answer your question, the reason I have to talk about this to answer your question is because, I I mean per, per, like I think inequality is 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 terrible. It, I think I think it's destroying the social fabric. I think I, I think it's terrible. I mean I am at the end of the day a kind of communist and and, and a Catholic. Like like I do think that um, it's ethically necessary for people to figure out ways to take care of each other in a kind of un- unconditional way. Um, so so on the one hand. Um, kind of what Silicon Valley culture represents, hyper productivity, uh, all of these kinds of associations people have with Silicon Valley. On the one hand, it is emblematic of of everything that's kind of terrifying and horrible about the world, right? Because um, it's hard, you know, people have to work harder and harder, right? People have to work more and more to keep up, right? Um, and there are large numbers of people who are being uh, kind of swallowed by this rat race because they can't keep up. They don't, they they just don't have the kind of biological hardware to be able to um, uh, do the type of work at the rate that it needs to be done in order to survive in today's society. And so that's horrifying. I, I don't like that. No, I don't celebrate that. I, th- I think it's terrible, but I do think it's an empirical reality. And ultimately, at the at the end of the day, I think uh, one has to always grapple as radically as possible with just whatever is the case and work from there. Uh, and so if that is the case, and I think that is the case, I think the literature bears that out, then all it means is that um, to whatever degree you are capable of you you have to try your hardest to design systems and and to create functional systems and to and to stick with them over time and and follow through on on the difficult challenges of building functional systems. And if that is something that and, and if everyone can only do that as best as they can, you might find yourself blessed and lucky to to learn that actually you're good at it and you are able to do it and you and you you are you are blessed. With the traits or the gifts that allow you to do that. Now, look, I'm not as smart as Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not, right? I'm not. I'm not as smart. I, I do not have the IQ of highly successful genius um, Silicon Valley CEOs at all. So, so I'm not like glibly putting myself in the camp of, you know, the super smart, creative visionaries who are succeeding uh, on the back of skill biased technology uh, technological change. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I am relatively gifted. Uh, and and it turns out I, I do have uh, a little bit of what it takes to to design systems and to uh, that work and to kind of scientifically iterate them over time. And so all I'm really saying is that for me, yeah, I've, I'm 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 quite pleased uh, uh, navigating this new world of of uh, a kind of uh, tech startup culture. And and for what it's worth, by the way, I mean I just think that these the Silicon Valley kind of uh, norms of how to launch startups and successfully, and how to run, how to run things, how to how to how to be maximally productive, and you know all these sort of uh, norms and ideas that are associated with Silicon Valley. Um, uh, yeah, I think it just represents um, like optimally intelligent work, right? It's just optimal efficiency is all it is um, at the end of the day. It's it's just it's just the scientifically iterated optimal format for being maximally productive. Uh, with the most scale and the most leverage using essentially science science, essentially, right? Um, so that's all it represents. And yeah, for someone like me who's who, who's relatively blessed in in certain ways, not super talented in any particular way, I am I, I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. Yeah, fuck yeah, it's awesome, right? Compared to academia, compared to like having to play these like insanely stupid, sclerotic, uh, kind of socially and politically uh, idiotic and corrupt uh, bullshit arbitrary games, um, fuck yeah. Like all these technologies and everything that's possible to do on the internet. Fuck yeah. It's amazing. It's awesome. I, I, I'm, I'm loving it, of course, but, um, the ability for people to enjoy that and to do that successfully is radically, uh, unequally distributed. And this goes back to what I was saying before that what this means is that the obligation for people who are, ab- if you are able to design new systems. And create them and follow through on them, and you're able and you're able to provide that negentropy or that structure for other people. You have an obligation to fucking do it full speed ahead. And but you have to like love and support the other people who are in your community. So I think be honest about inequalities, but also be uh, be honest and be kind of radically insistent about within the cultures, within the communities that you're creating, um, building like the most humane uh, or or ideal um, kind of political. Uh, distributions as as you're capable of producing. That's my take.
0: Okay. And I think to finish up here, do you want to just chat a little bit about your you know what it is you're making at the moment, which is uh, I mean, I don't know if you have any other projects on the go, but I think indie indie thinkers is, is your main one. You've said a little bit about it, but I don't know if you wanted to just finish up by telling us telling us about it.
1: Oh, I, I mean, I, I feel, I kind of already feel bad that I accidentally kind of plugged it a, oh, a couple right, times. I honestly fine. didn't think to do that. So I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to plug it too hard or too bad. I mean, one thing I'll clarify though is that I'm still committed, part part of my mission, my underlying mission that I, that I left academia with is that I'm going to figure out a way to maintain at all costs uh, a life that is primarily about me doing my own research and producing my own, my own research. So for instance, if like, I were to do a startup and then fast forward two years and people look at what I'm doing and I'm just a full-time CEO of a startup, I would consider that a failure. I am trying to do something I think quite unique. Uh, I don't just want to be financially successful or be financially free on the open market. I want specifically to pioneer a new model of the intellectual life. And to do that, that means I have to make sure that uh, you know, at least let's say 51% of my actual waking life, the actual work that I'm doing on a daily basis, um, I want at least 51% of that to be me reading and writing and thinking and speaking in a radically disinterested way, just pursuing the truth and developing my own long-term intellectual research agendas and 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 projects. Uh, so that's a kind of a priori commitment that 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 is part of just the the substantive. Ah, uh, goal or mission uh, that 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 I've I've set my to I've set myself to for my life. Um, now, but of course, you have to kind of hustle to do whatever it takes to uh, pay the bills and and to have a kind of uh, economically viable life. Of course, right. So, um, the startup that I launched a few months ago, IndieThinkers.org, it's just a private membership community on a subscription basis, and uh, the mission is to basically support any other independent intellectuals out there in in whatever way I can and I'm kind of iterating that in a kind of open-minded way just based on what my members are telling me uh, I'm trying to have a very kind of kind of scientific testing attitude towards it and constantly updating based on 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 the reality of, of what people want and need uh, but at the moment it has a few f- Few main features, and I basically just designed these from asking people. I just did a ton of user interviews. I just kind of asked people to do a Skype call with me to tell me about their goals and their and their problems specifically, like what are they struggling with the most? Uh, people who I see as as representatives of of the independent intellectual life, for instance. I think I even I, I got you on a call. I think okay. a few months mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. I basically just asked people to 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 tell me what they're going through. And I took that data and I just designed a few features that were specifically responsive to that to try to solve those problems. And without going into it too much, uh, there were certain problems that pretty much everyone said that they were facing as independent intellectuals. And the common ones were like lack of social community. They're just isolated. They don't have anyone else to talk to about it. Okay, I'll come up with a way to provide that. People want feedback on their work. They don't know how to get feedback because they don't know people who can give feedback. Okay, I'll find a way to create feedback structures. And, And so on, there were a few other uh, kind of common r- uh, problems that people have. So I just built a membership community on a subscription basis. And uh, I built some structures and systems to provide those things to people essentially. And uh, it seems to be, it seems to be taking off. It seems to be doing quite well. It's kind of growing faster even than I was hoping it would. And, but, but I don't, I don't want to be doing that more than, you know, let's say uh, 49% of, of, of my time. Cause I would consider that a failure. So my goal is at the moment I'm working on it really hard. It is occupying a lot of my time cause I'm building it. Right. But mm-hmm. the amazing thing about digital businesses is that uh, you can automate a lot of it. Uh, once you, once you do the processes by hand and you figure out once you, once you have the right model and you know, it's what people want and it's, delivering value and it's actually, yeah, it's actually worth it to people, then you can start automating. And so I'm not quite there yet. I'm doing a lot of kind of manual labor and hand-to-hand combat, you know, kind of building this up. So it is kind of a full-time thing at the moment, but I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still doing my, my, my other projects. I'm still writing books and uh, teaching courses is the new thing. I uh, recently did a course with my buddy Johannes Niederhauser on uh, Deloes versus Heidegger on technology. And it was amazing. We had about 20 people, um, Ah, uh, pay a a good chunk of money to to be a part of this, and we did seminars, and they they, they were amazing students. Uh, it was it was really like, I kid you not, it was like better than. Well, I I don't want to um I I don't want to. Uh, all my graduate students and and undergraduate students at um, universities are are also great. Like I would never speak ill ill of them. It's not about them. It's about the institutional environment in which I used to teach undergraduate classes and graduate seminars. The institutional environment is just so limited and, and constrained that um, I can honestly say doing this online course um, as a course, the course itself, I, I honestly believe it was better than any course I've ever offered within a university. And um, it, it's just absolutely amazing to, to say that, to be, to be honest. And so, yeah, uh, ultimately, it's not about me. Ultimately, it's about what I'm really trying to do is provide a demonstration effect. I think um, I want to show that it can be done. And I think once I show that it can be done, especially once I start sharing my finances, which I'm going to start doing soon, I think that tons of academics, especially early career academics or graduate students are going to be like, holy fuck, why am I, why am I even in academia? Like, I'm just going to do what Justin does. And I think there's so much room for so many academics to essentially do what I'm doing, because as I said before, it's so niche, it's so personality based. Um, There's tons of room, right? Because the people who want to work with me and join my communities and take my courses and read my books, it's a relatively particular type of person, right? It's based on who I am and what I think and my unique personality traits. Um, So there's so much room for other people with different personality traits and different styles to be just as financially successful as I am. Um, I don't see people like you and me as direct competitors whatsoever. Uh, And by the way, let me just get this on the agenda because it's a major fucking pet peeve of mine. Our space is dominated with just really, really negative sum thinking and bitter, resentful, uh, anxious kind of uh, competitive mentalities. Mm-hmm. And I just want to call this out there because I, I suspect people like some. they I don't, I don't know exactly who listens to your show, but like people who are in the kind of weird theory space, trying to do highly idiosyncratic kind of intellectual projects such as yours, Meta Nomad, uh, and mine. Um, you're cool. Like you're cool. Uh, we've always gotten along well, and I think you have a, you have a good uh, kind of cooperative attitude. Uh, But so many people trying to do the things that we're trying to do have this nasty, close-minded, kind of uh, insecure, defensive posture where they only want to shit on other people, they don't want to do collabs, they don't want to do positive sum games, and I think it's so fucking stupid, and it's so sad, honestly, for them, because the fact is, our niche is still so small and undeveloped that, like, I want to see you succeed, Meta Nomad, because mm-hmm. if the more you succeed, the more you're going to popularize this whole culture, the more you're going to normalize this market, you're, the more you're going to. Um, if you succeed in Meta Nomad, you're going to increase um, the number of people who even understand what this means, mm-hmm. which is going to be good for me, and it's going to bring more people into my orbit. So I think when you're in an unde- when you're in a relatively obscure, undeveloped niche, all of the people trying to create projects. Have to be all the more generous towards each other and all the more collaborative because they have so much to gain and they have almost nothing to lose. Like the number of people who even the number of people who even understand what we're doing in this kind of uh, this kind of uh, these new intellectual worlds and communities that we're trying to create, it's so tiny at the moment that um, like the the competitive defensive. Uh, mentality is so just unfounded and stupid uh we have we all have so much to gain by collaborating and 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 finding positive sum games and i think it's just so sad at the moment that there's so many kind of petty small-minded people in our spaces who uh aren't thinking like that i just want to call that out
0: yeah well, i sort of want to continue on that because it you know we don't have to go on for too long but well one of the things i've found is like since going full-time on this is to all the people that have supported me, I'm extremely, extremely thankful and it is a lot of support. But one of the things that surprised me is like when I look at my views, when I look at the analytics and the data, I'm like, it only took this much to get to where I am. Like it's not much. People I think the 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 representation of what it's like to sort of be successful in this frame is held by people who are like super successful and have millions and millions of views. And it just that is not the reality at all. Like that we're talking about niches and like once you're in a niche and you've found it, you don't need that much at all. You know, you need, like you said earlier, a small group of 50 to 100 really interested people is so much better than 10,000 uninterested people. And that would be my message to people so far is like, it doesn't take much at all. It just takes a lot of work and like, make the stuff, don't keep thinking about it. But like, in terms of the sort of competitiveness, like you said, like, we mine and your project um, are like, they are only alike in the form that they... They're taking it you know we're, we're part of the intellectual sphere and we're we're the the intellectual life that you're building we're we're, we're sort of part of that that's our form but in terms of actual content we're, we're miles apart now in in terms of actual competition and being competitive with each other there is podcasts that you would when you look at, at face value are extremely like mine and are extremely like yours but when you actually go on them and start listening to the content you begin to notice massive differences in, in why certain people would like certain things so one of the ones that's really like comedics is one called the higher side chats and the guy greg on there is way more laid back than me which some people love like it's one of the reasons i'm not a massive fan of the joe rogan show is i think he's too laid back but ultimately, you can the the tiniest thing can push away a crowd but that same thing can draw in a different crowd and like you said it's character traits and that's important and the whole competitive thing it's like it's not a whole i'm you know i'm not coming out at like a everybody work together, hold hands, blah, blah, blah. But it's like support a project because ultimately you're just boosting that sphere. You're boosting the, you know, you're, you're boosting the entire new intellectual life. And that's, and there, there is a lot of that. I've noticed that as well, but I just, I just sort of get on and make, because my sincere interest in the subjects comes before anything else. That was always the thing for me. Mm-hmm. Probably still the same for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course, for sure. I just think it's insane that other people don't realize that the positive sum games are so much better for especially people like us. So like for instance, let I just I just I want to I want to actually explain this to people because I honestly think they don't understand. I think they if they actually understood the economic and empirical reality, uh they might actually change their their style of of interacting with each other. Uh so real quickly, I'll just kind of explain what I'm talking about. So Let's just say, let's just make up some numbers uh, to fix ideas and do a scenario. Like, um, if, let's say you and I represent something like a, a kind of uh, ecosystem. We'll call—I tend to call it just like the weird theory space. Mm-hmm. Um, people doing kind of uh, pretty, pretty intense abstract philosophy and science stuff, uh, kind of off, off the, off the radar or off the coordinates of kind of mainstream uh, intellectual circles. Um, there's a bunch of us, right? Uh, uh, we're very, very different. Almost so different that. I'm not even sure many other people have a kind of consciousness that we're relatively in the same kind of ecosystem. So we are currently so fucking small relatively like the, our audiences, our audiences are relatively extremely small and that's in part because of the millions of people about out there. um, Most of them don't even know that we exist. They don't know that there are people like us doing the type of content and community building that we're doing. Um, So basically people in our niche, if, if, if I can do anything, MetaNomad, to double your success, what it really means is, first of all, no, I'm not gonna lose anything whatsoever because the people who are interested in you and wanna be a part of your content and your community are simply different people than the types of people who are gonna be most interested in, in being part of my niche, right, my kind of sub-niche. Yeah. So that's the first thing is you simply don't lose anything because of this kind of radically personality contingent uh, process that you just described and which I described before. That's the first thing you simply don't lose anything, but think about what you gain. If I can do anything to double your success, then what that means is more people are going to hear about the simple fact that our niche exists as a whole, right? So like if I can double your subscribers, Meta Nomad, what that means is those people's friends and families and, and, and associates, um, are going to hear, Oh, there's an online world where people are doing like sophisticated philosophical analysis or scientific analysis and research that's completely off the grid of, of mainstream academia or intellectual life. And they're actually smart and they're actually consistent and and they're, they're really doing something real that that's persisting over time. Oh, that even exists. So from you doubling your subscribers, Meta Nomad, maybe um, three times that number will hear about the fact that we as a whole, as a niche exist. And what that means is that's going to bring in new people who look into you and then they look into, then they want to look into who are other people kind of like you and then they'll find one who is more suited to them personally. And so therefore the way I see it is if I can double your subscribers Meta Nomad, I'm going to in the long run probably also be doubling or, or, or more my own subscribers in my own community in the long run because there's just so much to gain from the, the 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 larger market that we currently have almost none of right we're so niche so so that's that's basically like the economic logic that i really want people to understand because i am stunned i'm stunned how many people out there in our niche who um have have like no more influence or 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 power or success than i have um are like Snooty or dismissive or judgmental or defensive or like not interested in building positive some games it, it boggles my fucking mind it really boggles my mind because um, if we all just played more positive some games and weren't so fucking like holier-than-thou uh, Kind of shitting on each other like we could seriously um, Bootstrap our tiny little niche into this like big uh, visible uh, cultural presence and everyone could could potentially triple quadruple um, kind of the the size and the impact and the significance of, of what we're all trying to do. So I I just really kind of want to put that on the agenda and make the case and 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 shout that from the rooftops.
0: Okay. I think that that message of just support each other, you know, you're not going to lose out is uh, is a good place to to finish up. So all right, Justin, thanks very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.